0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Take your Bibles and open them to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. A few weeks ago, at Christmas, we opened our Bibles to the 12th chapter of Revelation, and there we read and we discussed the subject, the cosmic battle for Christmas. I don't know if you remember that message, but it serves as a very fitting introduction to the next few sermons that will be about the rise of the world's most destructive individual who is known as the Antichrist. Most of the time when people study end-time events, the most important information they think that they want to learn, what they really desire to learn is who is this person who will be the Antichrist. And that interest is so overwhelming that I've noted many times that people seem to be more interested in the Antichrist than they are the true Christ, that is Jesus Christ. And while they're more interested in the Antichrist, they're unaware that they actually have more in common with the Antichrist than they do the true Christ. And the reason for this is because the spirit of Antichrist is formed in the heart of every person in this world. It's a spirit of unbelief, it's a spirit of rebellion, a spirit of hatred towards God, and every person in this world is born with it. The term Antichrist, that is a compound word. The first part, of course, is anti, which means against. It can mean in the place of. And then the second part is from the Greek word Christos, which means Christ. And so, very simply, Antichrist means against Christ, or it means in the place of Christ. And both of those fit very well the description of this person who will come later, who is known as the Antichrist. It it also fits the, the hatred that's in the heart of every person. Naturally, we are against God. We are against his Christ. We are anti, and that is the plain teaching of Scripture. What we do is we put other gods in the place of Christ, That is the source of all idolatry. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that we refuse to retain God in our knowledge and we don't submit to Christ. And so the true creator and sustainer, the providential God of this universe of heaven and earth, then is replaced by our imagination. The Apostle John is the Bible's source of this term, Antichrist. He used this word, Antichristos. He's the only one that wrote it that way in the scriptures, but he is by no means the author of this concept. Now, he wrote in his epistle of 1 John, in the second chapter in verse 18, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now, there are many Antichrists, where we know that it is the last time. In other verses, such as, 1 John 2.22 and 1 John four three, he describes the doctrine of Antichrist. In the 22nd verse, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. In the fourth chapter in verse 3, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now is it already in the world. That's the doctrine of Antichrist. It's a very extensive doctrine. It's the doctrine that denies the deity and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It denies his right as the supreme ruler of heaven and earth. It denies his salvation to eternal life, that it comes only through him. And it denies what Jesus said, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus Christ is the only way that we will ever come to God. Now, as we see in verse number 4 of this text, the Antichrist opposes all that is called God. That is, he opposes all the works of the holy God. And it's also true that anyone who opposes the work of God has this spirit of Antichrist in him. As far back as the Garden of Eden, the spirit of Antichrist was at work in the world. Satan is the originator of all false works. He opposed God's work in the creation of man. There's speculation that God's intention to exalt man above the angels and thus above Lucifer was the event that set off Lucifer's rebellion. He didn't want to be just another creature that was put under God's dominion. So Lucifer rebelled against God in heaven, and then he carried that spirit of rebellion to this earth, and that began his centuries-long opposition to God's work of the redemption of man through Jesus Christ, and thus he is, Satan is, Antichrist. And that opposition will continue until God brings world history to its close. Now, the cosmic battle for Christmas was part of his plan to prevent Christ's birth and his redemption through the cross. Satan lost that battle, but the battle continues. And its last great attempt will be to give rise to the Antichrist and usurp God's authority on this earth. So we can look into the in the Bible and we can trace the activity of the antichrist, the spirit of antichrist down through the Bible's history. It began with the fall of man. The spirit of antichrist is the reason that Cain killed Abel. It's the reason the entire world was wicked in the days of Noah and God destroyed it with the flood. You can find the spirit of antichrist in Pharaoh who tried to kill all of the male Hebrew babies. The spirit of Antichrist was in the Canaanites when they fought against Israel's possession of the promised land. It was in the many plots to destroy the royal line of kings in Israel that would have prevented the Messiah's descent from David. And this descent of Christ at times was dependent upon one person who hung between life and death or on one child that had to be protected at all costs. The spirit of Antichrist was in the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in the days of Jeremiah. It was in wicked Haman who tried to destroy the entire human race and the Jews were only saved by the providential acts of God through Mordecai and Queen Esther. The spirit of Antichrist was here in the intertestamental period when Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king, offered a sow on the altar... In Jerusalem, and then tried to destroy the Jews. The spirit of Antichrist was in King Herod, who was foiled by the wise men and then retaliated by ordering all male babies in the vicinity of Jerusalem to be killed in an effort to find the true Christ. The spirit of Antichrist was in Jesus' ministry when the crowds heard him preach, and then, after hearing the true gospel, they tried to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth. The spirit of Antichrist was in the chief priest who took Jesus to a mock trial and condemned him. And he was in Pilate. The spirit of the Antichrist was in Pilate when he let a seditionist go free and replaced him with an innocent man and then nailed him to the cross. The spirit was in those people who pleaded with Pilate that he should set a guard at the tomb to prevent the resurrection. It was in the Jewish leaders who hated the church and gave authority to a man named Saul and sent him to search out Christians and take them to prison. And then it was in those who took that same man when he was converted to Christ and threw him in prison and then put him to death. The spirit of Antichrist was in the Roman emperors, Domitian and Caligula and Nero. And yes, even in Constantine who promoted paganized Christianity in the Roman Empire. The spirit of Antichrist was in the popes of Rome who began the Inquisition and persecuted God's people and tried to hunt them to extinction. The spirit is also very modern as it was found in Hitler with the Holocaust and with Stalin in Russia and now with communists in China and Muslims that have infiltrated every European country. It's found in the halls of our American Congress. It's found in our Supreme Court. It's found in the presidency. It's on the dais, in the debates of the candidates for president. The spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in this world as there are those in Palestine who are trying to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. The spirit is alive in Hollywood, it's alive in the liberal news media. It's alive in the sexual perversion of LBGTQ that threatens our families and the very existence of them and this nation. It's alive as a spirit of murder in the one who supports abortion. And friends, the, the spirit of Antichrist is here in Roner Park in this neighborhood in a Roman or rather in a Mormon church right down the street that fits John's description of those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And in his day, John said, the Antichrist was already working. And he is still working today in the false prophets in America and all across the world. Well, the question then comes to mind in this text, what is the alarm? Why why is there alarm in the Thessalonian church when the spirit of Antichrist has always been in the world? And if this spirit has been here for so long, all the way back since the Garden of Eden, why are these people that Paul writes to so upset, and what is it that has them on edge? And we can trace the the problem to their misunderstanding of end times, and Paul's teaching about the appearance of the Antichrist, and if you're taking notes, you can write that in big, bold letters, the Antichrist, because the spirit of many Antichrists will culminate in the appearance of one man who embodies all of them to the nth degree and in their worst form. They were alarmed because they thought that that time was now. The alarm was the intense persecution that will come at the hands of this one man, His appearance is taught in the Old Testament. It's found in the teachings of Jesus. That's where Paul got his information. It's in the Bible that in the end times it will be characterized by the appearance and the embodiment of the world's most evil imaginable in this person who is known as the Antichrist. Now, we want to look at this text and see how that Paul deflects Thessalonian misunderstanding and shows them that the present persecution they were in was not an indication they were in the very last days. And he ties that instruction to what the conditions of the world will be like in the day of the Lord. If you look at our text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, "...that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed." "...the son of perdition," that describes the Antichrist, "...who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God." or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? Now ye know that what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let, till he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Our attention in this text is drawn once again to the confusion of the Thessalonian church about end-time events. And as you see here in verse number 5, Paul said that he had already explained these things to them when he was there in their city. This was when they were converted to Christ and they became a church. This is information that he wrote to them also in his first letter. And there are only just a, just a few weeks between the first and second letters. And in the meantime, this confusion had not been dispelled. The confusion of the end times had, had not been dispelled. And it was exacerbated by false claims, by forged letters, and by false teachers in the church. church remained under intense persecution and they misunderstood this persecution to be the, the final catastrophe of the end times. And what they didn't understand was, was that persecution is characteristic of all times. That God's people have experienced persecution from the world since the very beginning. And I've just shown you. We've rehearsed uh, some of the history of this. And we've seen that the spirit of Antichrist has tried in every way imaginable to destroy God's people. And when you couple this this misunderstanding of persecution with a plethora of misdirection of those that were trying to fool them, these are people that were living in despair that God's promise to deliver them had failed. And so, you see, in the end of the second verse, the problem is speculation that the day of the Lord was at hand. This is the problematic issue that is the unacceptance of what Paul said in the first letter. Now, going back to the first letter, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5, Paul already explained that believers will not experience the day of the Lord. That is not from this side of glory. The church won't go through any part of that day because the church will already be gone from the world. Now, I'd like for us to look at that first and refresh us on this promise of deliverance that we have, just as Paul told the Thessalonian church. So first... We look at the reception of the church. I'm speaking of the reception of God's people into glory. In Second Thessalonians 2 verse 1, our first verse, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. I want you to notice a very important word in the text. Our English text reads, The coming, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word coming is the Greek word parousia. And it refers to the Lord coming for his church. And if you look in the first letter, First Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse number 13, it says, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Then in the fourth chapter, in verse number 15, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, shall not prevent them, shall not precede them which are asleep. The coming is the parousia. This is the event of the rapture that happens before the world is plunged into a terrible time of judgment. It's the time immediately preceding the day of the Lord, or the day of Christ, as it says here in this text. And this is what kicks off all of these end-time events. The day of the Lord, as described by the Apostle Paul, is for unbelievers. That's what Paul said in chapter 5, in verses 3 and 4. He said, sudden destruction comes on them, that it won't come on you who are believers, who are children of the day. He says that you, believers, you are the children of the light. You don't walk in the darkness of this world. The destruction that comes is for them. And it will not affect you as a believer. Why? Well, because he said in the third chapter, the Lord is coming with his saints. He said in the fourth chapter, when he comes, those who are asleep in Jesus will be raised. The living will be changed to go up. They will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. This is the time that the archangel sounds when the trumpet of God is heard, and then God's people go up. In the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, you will be delivered from the wrath to come. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, in our text, the apostle emphasizes that the parousia is the same as what he said in the first letter, and here he refers to it as the gathering. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming, by the parousia, and our gathering together unto Him. Believers, we will be gathered with Him. We will be received up into glory. Now, this gathering refers to God's people, and it's only used this way in the New Testament. It's the assembly of the redeemed. And we notice that. Paul used it to deflect the idea that present persecution indicated that the day of the Lord was upon them. In fact, tribulation-type persecution was not there, and it couldn't happen if they were still in the world. We read Paul's letters, and we see that his theology of the end times is consistent, and what it does, it eliminates any possibility that there will be a mid-tribulation or a post-tribulation rapture. Now, that simply means that Christians go through part of the tribulation, that's mid-tribulation, and then Christ comes, or post-tribulation, we go through all of it, and then Christ comes. That is not what Paul says. This can't happen if they're still in this world, if Christians are still here. And so this section of the letter is to explain what happens after the rapture, and Paul uses this as proof to show that they were not in the tribulation. So what happened here, what he describes, can't happen until the Lord appears for his people. And the fact that the Lord wasn't there yet was evidence they weren't in the day of the Lord. And I want to emphasize that to you today. Many prophecy pundits try to figure out all the signs. They're always looking for the signs. They're looking for indicators that Christ's coming is near. And so interestingly, they'll look at all the world's troubling times. They see the hatred of people against Christ. They measure wickedness by Hollywood, by Congress, and by the Supreme Court. They measure it by the rogues that are running for president and by the one who sits in the office without a semblance of morality. They measure it by the trampling of Christian rites, and so they say, aha, this means that the, that the coming of Christ is near. These are the signs of the times, and so Christ must appear soon. One of our former members never failed to go out the door without asking me, have you seen this? Have you read this article? Do you see what the Pope is doing? I mean, surely this is a sign, and he would always say, this is a sign of the parousia. This is the time of the gathering. Does this mean that Christ is coming? And the answer is no. The, the answer really is we can't know. Because the spirit of Antichrist has always been here. This evil spirit has always been in the world. And a review of world history shows that our time is not the worst time. And so it's not a time for us to judge. We don't have the ability to judge. As Christians, we're not going to see that time. We, we, we won't recognize that time. Because the coming of the Lord could happen at any time comes without warning so we won't even understand it to be a different time persecution and hatred of god's people has always been here we experience it now and across the world it's being experienced so we don't speculate about the times because then we would end up like the thessalonians we end up with confusion we end up with false hope or with no hope Predictions of Christ coming, and you see it in the papers from time to time. You know, it, it comes around in cycles, it seems like, that people are predicting that Christ has come, and everybody gets prepared. And what happens is that fosters despair and confusion when he doesn't show up. It ruins trust in the living God who said, you are not going through the tribulation. But when the predictions don't come true, people despair. Now, if you look back at chapter 1 and verse number 7, the apostle said, you that are troubled, rest with us. Now here, Paul is letting us know that the Lord is in sovereign control. Persecution has not and will not set back the Lord's eternal agenda. Persecution never troubles the Lord. So it's fear of this that prevented their rest and it confused them about whether God is actually always looking out for our good. And this is what happens when you believe false information. These are people that became convinced that this tribulation, the intense persecution they were going through, this must be the last days. And if so, then they were treated as unbelievers, people destined for this day of the Lord. Now, date setters and sign readers deny the truth of God's promise. The prophecy seminars that are always looking for things like blood moons and signs like that are purveyors of lies. And that's the reason that we need to know the truth of God's word. Our hope is dependent on it. Now to take us a little bit further, we notice number two, the deception of Christians. Christians can become deceived over these things. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world and it got its start with that first lie... The Spirit lied and promised good, promised Adam that if he ate of that tree that he would have the knowledge of good and evil and that would be a good thing, but that was the wickedest, most diabolical lie that's ever been told. Satan tried to prevent Adam from fellowship with God and he actually succeeded with a temporary breach, but what he couldn't overcome was God's sovereign plan for his first man. Well, here's what happens when Satan loses the battle for the soul. And folks, let me tell you, Satan cannot steal one of God's children. He can't take your eternal soul. Once you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's never going to be taken away. And so what Satan does, he goes for the next worst thing. That is, he takes away our joy, he takes away our peace, he destroys our happiness, and he works against the confidence that we have in Christ. And that's what all sin is. It's to miss the mark of the very best that God has for you. And so when you yield to sin, you shortchange your confidence in your salvation. Now, if you look in the second verse, you see how Paul termed this. He says, you are shaken, you are troubled, you are disturbed by what you've heard. And a disturbed Christian doesn't function very well. A troubled Christian is spiritually crippled. His hope is off. His sanctification is off. He, he sins and he, the lies that he believes will cause him to, to look for the wrong things and cause him to doubt God. And we think for just a moment about the lies of the prosperity gospel. What happens to all of these people who believe the prosperity gospel? That you bring your money, you give and you give and you give and, and God promises He's going to make you rich in this world. What happens when these people don't get the riches they're promised? What happens to their hope? What happens to the confidence they have in God? Well, they lose it. And so you see many of these people turning inwardly to self. That's where they get their help. Self-help, not God. And so they doubt God. Now, it's interesting that Satan has worked against the church for so long. Ever since there's been a church, Satan has worked against it. We see it especially... Well, we see it in all the churches in the New Testament, but one of the places where it becomes very, very clear to us what Satan is doing is, uh, was in Corinth. Corinth was a city that had long been a stronghold for Satan for many, many years. The spirit of Antichrist was there for a long, long time, and what it had done is locked the people down in every form of decadence. Corinth could be described as sin city. What happened in Corinth didn't stay in Corinth because the sin of Corinth was legendary throughout the entire empire. But then the Apostle Paul came and he preached the gospel and the Spirit worked in many of the people and those people were turned from their idols and they began to serve the living and true God. What do you think Satan did? Do you think Satan said, well, I have no hope here any longer, so I'll just give up on Corinth? No, that was a battle that he lost for the soul... But Satan is still in this war. He's still in the war to capture the mind. So you read the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and we see Paul there constantly combating sin in the church. So Satan switched his tactic to many other avenues. He has many wiles and many methods to destroy the hope and the confidence of Christians. So he begins to put out fake news, disinformation, counterfeiting, That's a diabolical tactic, and that's, in fact, what the Antichrist is. He is a counterfeit. Now, in in Thessalonica, in this church that we have before us today, the church received Paul's teachings as the Word of God. They had confidence in him as a teacher. So Paul advised them, don't be so hastily deceived by things that you hear. Remember the things that you were taught. Now, they had much confidence in the apostle, and so we think, what could shake them? What could shake that confidence they have in Paul? What would lead them away from what they had learned? What about this? What if there's a spirit? Look in verse number 2. That you soon be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by a spirit. What if there's a spirit? What if there's a, a false teacher that claimed he had special revelation from God and that Revelation reversed or altered what Paul said. So there in verse 2, Paul says, Don't be shaken so quickly in your minds, not by a spirit. And most likely the spirit that's mentioned here is a, is a false teacher, as it explains in 1 John, where John discussed the spirit of Antichrist. Peter used it that way too. That's the most likely interpretation. But we ought not to rule out the supernatural. You remember in Galatians... Paul said, if an angel appears and teaches something different than he taught, don't believe him. If an angel comes and preaches another gospel, don't believe it, because even an angel doesn't have authority to change what they learned from Christ. Well, maybe that's what Satan tried in Thessalonica. Angels can take on bodily form. Sometimes they appear as men. We see that several times in the Old Testament, and it seems logical That Satan's evil angels can do the same. So maybe that's what happened. But most likely, Paul means, don't be troubled by a false teacher. And what does Satan do today? Well, false religions are built on false revelations. The charismatic movement has plenty that claim that they hear from God and they speak for God. And people are fooled. They're persuaded. None of them are... Good Bible students, they just suck up every lie like a big mouth bass. They swallow the hook. And they just assume every utterance, everything that they hear must have come from God. Now I mentioned the Mormons a moment ago. Their great deceiver was Joseph Smith, and you know what he claimed? He claimed he saw an angel, didn't he? he claimed he saw an angel and this angel gave him a key to translating some golden plates of hieroglyphic inscriptions. And guess what? Those mysterious plates were fake news. They weren't the inspired, infallible Word of God. And of course, those plates were fake. They didn't exist. The concept was fake. The prophet was fake. And yet millions of people around the world believe the fake revelation of a raving lunatic. And from that, the Mormon false gospel was born. Turn on your television. Watch TBN. Well, rather, don't. I'm not advising that you do that. Uh, But I can tell you what's there. Religious programming is filled with the deception of false prophets that spread lies of new revelations. That's one of Satan's oldest tactics. The spirit of Antichrist is to raise up false prophets who ignore Scripture and manipulate Scripture and change the Scriptures and make lies. Well, next, Paul said, don't be troubled by a word that you hear. Now the meaning of that is don't be troubled by an exposition, a discourse, a topic, or a sermon. End time events are certainly fascinating subjects. If you want to get a crowd, just advertise a prophecy seminar. Claim that you have a key, uh, key insights into the future and crowds will come, books are written, sermons are preached, and out goes a flood of misinformation. Much of that's never questioned. Like a shiny fake Rolex, people think that it's real. If a preacher said it, there's got to be some truth to it. How do you fight things like that? How do you dispute that, these new revelations and new things that people say? Well, the first thing you have to do is go to the Word of God. The Word of God is the objective source of truth. Everything else you hear, it's speculation, it's subjective, it's lies. And so what Paul did when he preached was to go to the Old Testament. And he preached to some who are. Like the Bereans. That's where we get our name. Remember? The Berean Baptist Church. He preached to people in Berea. The Bereans who said, Well, we're going to check out everything you say, Paul. We're going to look in the scriptures and see if the things that you say are true. And that was especially important in the New Testament times because there were some in the church that God did give a a special gift of revelation. And why did he do that? Well, it's because the Bible wasn't yet complete. So what do you think Satan did with all that? Well, he mimicked it. He mimicked the prophecies. He distorted them so people would be confused. And Paul warned the church, be careful about this. Examine these gifts that people have. Be careful with them. Always try what someone says, by the Old Testament, by what Christ said, or by what the apostles said, and if it doesn't line up, reject it. So if someone tells you something that destroys your confidence in the grace of God, in the wisdom of God, in the providence of God, in the promises of God. If someone puts his thoughts or your thoughts above God's thoughts, reject it because it's a lie. But then there's still a third prong in Satan's attack that Paul explains. Notice that he mentions a letter. That's the most telling of all. Don't be shaken in mind by a letter that appeared to come from him, or from Silas or Timothy, these were the men that taught them. These were the men that owned their confidence. And the problem appears to be that someone circulated a letter and said, this letter is from the apostle. And that was a formidable deception. In Galatians, Paul argued strenuously for his apostleship. He told about his persecution of the church, but then he was changed, he was saved, and he said that he was chosen by God from his birth to preach the gospel. He said Jesus revealed certain teachings to him through the Holy Spirit. He said he didn't learn because he conferred with the other apostles. In fact, he went on to tell them how he rebuked Peter when Peter was wrong, and that was certainly a sign of Paul's authority. And that just gave the sense that if a letter comes from Paul, A letter from Paul is golden. A letter from Paul is true because he spoke with the authority of the Holy Spirit. His letters were standards of truth because they had confidence they came from God. So that made whatever Paul said above reproach. They accepted what he said as the truth of God himself and rightly so because it was. Well, how how would Satan harness all these good feelings about Paul And then use that to destroy the people. Well, how about this? What if he forged one of those letters? What if a scheming, conniving false prophet wrote a false letter, then signed Paul's name to it? Oh, if it comes from Paul, it must be true. And you know that tactic was not uncommon in the first century. Many spurious books were written. Many of them claimed that they were written by apostles. Today, all of that is grouped under the heading of pseudographia. Some were fooled by this false literature, and there's still some today that are misled by it. People just don't want to believe the Bible. The spirit of Antichrist is at work and looking for any way he can to discredit the Bible. So false prophets planted a false gospel to supplant the true gospel. Now, you think about this. Why didn't... All these letters, this pseudographia, why didn't those things make it into the Bible? Well, it's because God preserves his word. None of those false books rise to the holy character of true writings. None of them were good enough for true students of God's word. The church never recognized them as inspired and infallible. You can't have something in the Bible that contradicts the Bible. And I might mention this as well, that none of this was decided. I mean, what you have right here in your Bible was not decided by a council of the Roman Catholic Church. We didn't get the Bible from Roman Catholicism. We couldn't, because the spirit of Antichrist never produces anything that's true. So a false letter circulated, and here are the Thessalonians. They're scratching their heads. Some of them are led astray. And Paul said, don't believe that. That didn't come from us. There is one gospel. It doesn't change. There is one Word of God, it will not change. There is one truth, and it will always be the same. It was true yesterday, it's true today, it'll be true tomorrow. Now again, the point is that certain events will happen in the day of the Lord. As Paul sat down to write this letter, those events hadn't happened. And they still haven't happened. Yes, the spirit of Antichrist is in the world. He's working, he's working hard to deceive you just as he has in every age. But what you see going on now is nothing but ordinary persecution. It's expected persecution is not the end times tribulation persecution. Well, next, Paul will explain what happens when the spirit of Antichrist becomes embodied in the living person, the Antichrist. They won't see it because the day's not for them, and you won't see it. Lord's Church, because the day is not for you. But he will tell them what will happen. And they'll see they're not in the day of the Lord. And hopefully the confusion will disappear. Now very quickly, if you just look at verses 3 and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, Or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is a description of the Antichrist. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Then don't ask me if it's the end. I don't know. Neither does anyone. Now, we're going to come back to this, and I'll tell you what we do know. I'll tell you what the Bible says about this, and then you'll know as much as the Lord permits us to know. But in the meantime, I will tell you, keep your eyes open for the real Christ. He could come today. He may come today. I'd much rather see him than a thousand antichrist. I'd much rather know about him than all the information there is about his imposter. Trust the real Christ. It's the real Christ who gave his life on Calvary to save you. He came and satisfied God for the sin of sinners. And that's the truth. You can trust him. You can't trust anybody but him. Hear him. Believe him. And the Bible says, you will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your word. Lord, we look for truth in your scriptures. We know... The word is truth. If your word doesn't verify what we say, then we've preached everything in vain. And never do we want to stand here and say anything that we can't substantiate by your holy word. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to hearts of people today. Maybe some are confused and maybe some have been listening to things and watching things and just don't know the truth. Lord, help us to... Preach truth. Help us to tell people that we need to keep our eyes open for Jesus Christ because he is the only way, the truth, and the life. Nothing really matters but what we know about him. That's the most important thing. And all these other things are attendant things and will become important as we know Jesus Christ first. Help us, Lord. We pray that if there's anyone here who's not repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ to save their souls from the awful destruction that is coming. I pray, Lord, you would open their heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ and may they believe today. And then, Lord, as Christians, I pray that we would be examples in this world, that we would live as if your coming is today, because that is what your word demands. Be ready at all times because you may come today. Help us, Lord, to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke, Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronit Park, California,